This is Car Expert. The T-Rox sort of feels a little bit or drives a little bit like a little luxury car. It was the best tally for the month of August in about five years. In the grand scheme, this is looking like the market is returning to some semblance of normality. When you see it in your mirror, there's no question of what it is with those C-shaped lights and the, the big chunky Ford grille. Hello, Mike Costello. Hello, Mandy Turner. And hello to you, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy. Uh, Now, some pretty big news if you haven't caught up on all our social media channels and, of course, carexpert.com.au. Scully, we won some pretty big awards at the Mumbrella Awards last week. We sure did. So, Car Expert was nominated for three awards at the Mumbrella Publish Awards, which are kind of where one of the big industry bodies gets together and celebrates the wider publishing industry. We were up for Brand of the Year, Website of the Year, and Publish Leader of the Year. I know what two of those mean. I'm not sure what a Publish Leader is, but <laughs> that's the one we didn't win. We were highly commended for Publish Leader of the Year, and we won Brand of the Year and Website of the Year. And if you head to Car Expert, yeah. you'll be able to see a photo of part of the team up there in Sydney looking very happy. Um But it's actually the second year in a row we've won website of the year Um, and it's a really strong endorsement from the industry of what Car Expert's doing and the direction the team is heading. Um, Mike Costello, you have just come back from the States and and speaking of seeing photos on social media, you have Mm -hmm. uploaded some incredible photos. Was it Utah that you went to? Yeah, I went to Utah. So, um, never been to Utah before. Been to the States a million and one times for work, but never to that particular to that particular part of uh, the United States. Went there with Toyota to drive a couple of very exciting cars from its GR Performance sub-brand um, at a, an amazing desert racetrack there surrounded by mountains. It's about 40 degrees Celsius there every day at the moment. So, boiling hot as you can imagine. So the first car that we drove was the GR Supra. Who cares, you say? That car's been out for ages, but the difference is now it's got a manual gearbox, not just the eight-speed ZF Auto now, but a manual gearbox too, three pedals, not uh, the carryover BMW manual either, which I always find to be a bit rubbery and uh, quite a long throw. Toyota's really gone to town to re-engineer it and make it feel like a proper manual gearbox. Not as fast as the Auto Supra, but certainly more engaging. There's a review on carexpert.com.au, so go check that out. The other car I can't really talk a hell of a lot about at the moment because I am under a, an, an embargo that I've agreed to, but the GR Corolla, we all know it uses the GR Yaris's three-cylinder turbo engine and rally-inspired almost homologation special all-wheel drive system. This ain't your Nan's Corolla, let me give you the tip. Um, It's one of the more bonkers hot hatches to look at and uh, I cannot wait to bring you the review on that car on the 14th of September. So, yes, very exciting. Getting back, living out of a suitcase like we used to, uh, this sort of slowly coming out of COVID world is bringing back a lot of the things that we used to do with regularity and it was great to be on a plane again. That manual Supra sounds really interesting, and I think it's quite a statement from Toyota to take the engine and a chunk of the chassis and the bones of the Supra from BMW, but to say, you can keep your manual, guys. We, we don't want that. that is, um, that's some commitment to what is a pretty niche car. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's pretty much a common thread that among performance enthusiasts that, I mean, that maybe the M3 and M4 are a bit different, but the sort of more stock standard BMW manuals, they're never the most engaging things. Clearly, BMW intentionally tunes its manuals to feel that, to feel that way because it's such an engineering-led company. But yeah, this gearbox, much more notchy, much more mechanical, shorter shift action, felt very Honda 
very Honda, very Honda Civic Type R in its feel, so that really nice, crisp feel. So great job, Toyota. Looking forward to seeing all those reviews in the meantime. That's another week or so away, Mocha. How are we going to wait that long? <laughs> it's time to talk this week's car news, and it's over to you first, Moco. Toyota Australia is wanting to stop scalpers selling in-demand cars at markups. So I think we spoke about this a few weeks ago. Was it General Motors who were doing this as well? Yeah, so GM in the States has been doing some uh, interesting things to stop people from buying incredibly supply-restricted cars and then flogging them immediately at a massive markup. Car manufacturers hate when that happens. You know, contrary to belief where you think car makers are, are raking in record profits, and yes, they are raking in record profits, but the downside of unscrupulous private buyers buying a new vehicle and flipping it in a markup is that it really damages so uh, the brand, you know, it really may, it really makes uh, a car company in question look quite bad, frankly, because their vehicles are, are going for a lot more than they really ought to be going for. And uh, the vice president of sales and marketing for Toyota Australia, Sean Handley, who's always one of the more outspoken fellas uh, in the industry, has really gone to town on this issue, considering the fact that Toyota has some of the worst wait lists of any brand in market, you know, really magnified by the fact that it's far and away the biggest brand in market. It's no surprise that he has some strong views on it. Um, So-called car scalpers really are thriving at the moment because of ongoing shortages and all-time high demand. And I'll just give you a a bit of a quote here from from Sean Hanley. Uh, We want to discourage any sort of reselling and short cycling, he said. We think it's deeply important that we take a leadership position on this particular issue. Uh, We've spent decades building trust around our brand and it's quite disturbing to think that we have a few that are short cycling our cars to make money. I think we need to protect as best we can our consumers from those types of behaviours. Now, the issue is there's... It's quite hard to sort of stay within the confines of the law here because, of course, there are basic forces of supply and demand. There's no law that says you can't buy a Land Cruiser, put a few thousand Ks on it, and then down the track flog it for $200,000. There's actually no law against that. Toyota's dealers have signed an agreement to say that they shouldn't be doing that, but a private person can really flog the car for whatever they want to. So what's interesting about this is is Hanley has actually called on regulators to try and come up with some sort of model or law or rule or regulation that would stop this from happening. He's called on not just his own company in the industry, but actually the lawmakers just to at least get this conversation started, to get this on the agenda, because people don't tend to think about cars as appreciating assets in this sense. But it really is hurting brands because some of their most desirable cars are becoming increasingly hard to get a hold of and unattainable. So I thought as a way of kind of putting your sort of flag in the sand and saying, I want to talk about this issue, it was actually really interesting that Hanley decided to put this on the table. Scully, uh, I reckon you might have some thoughts on this one. I, I do. And I empathize with what Toyota's dealing with because I can imagine it's really frustrating to have a huge list of customers waiting and do everything you can to get them cars as soon as possible. And then essentially have someone turn around and kick sand in your face and go, screw you, I'm going to profit from the problem in a way that Toyota can't as a company. I do think talk of regulation might be a little over the top though. If you look at Australia, housing is one example where prices continue rising and no matter what regulators do to try to stop housing price price growth, to try to make it easier for people to get into the market, ultimately the market is what decides what those houses are worth and, and the prices keep rising. I think it's the same thing here. Um for all that Toyota wants the government to potentially do and for all that Toyota can do itself, the only thing that is going to correct what is 
at the moment a blip in the market is supply coming back in and the market kind of regulating and correcting itself yeah ultimately Toyota just needs to build and source more vehicles for Australia the line the line that uh, Sean Hanley used was quote I don't want customers paying over the odds and we intend to investigate everything we can within the legalities of Australian consumer competition law and rules to try and bring that together so it's deliberately quite a vague approach I also think that there's a little bit of um I won't say hypocrisy but one of the more thorny issues here is that technically used cars are counted as a separate base as I said before but it's quite slippery what a used car is because I see all the time Toyota dealers with supposed demonstrator, let's use a Land Cruiser 300 for an example, go on car sales on your phone right now and have a look at demonstrator Land Cruisers with maybe a thousand or two Ks on them that for all intents and purposes are new cars. I mean, they're not used, they're barely used at all and they're going for crazy markups often at Toyota dealers. So, you know, let's not pretend that this is just Joe Public doing this. A lot of unscrupulous people from all walks of life are really capitalising on the fact that at the moment, you know, supply is so limited. But the bigger problem, of course, is that for particularly performance vehicles where the whole point of them is to get younger, more enthusiastic people into the brand, it's locking them out. What's happening in the car world now is kind of what's happening with Sydney real estate, where people that want to get in, want to get their foot on the ladder, can't. And the people at the top are just continually getting more and more and more. We're starting to see that in the world of cars. Hopefully it corrects itself. But I did think it was interesting that at least Toyota was putting it on the agenda. I think it's also worth mentioning Toyota is, as you meant, as you sort of touched on earlier, Moco, the most prominent example of this, because despite being the biggest car company in the country by a mile, it has wait lists of 12 to 18 months on a whole lot of its high profile models. This is something we're seeing with a lot of other brands as well. Uh, we're in a lot of Ford Ranger forums, for example, to keep an eye on news. And it's pretty regular to see someone post their brand new wild track for a 20, 30, 40K markup in the hopes that someone who is nine months behind them in the queue has the cash ready to go and and is willing to to take the leap and flip that car essentially. So Toyota is very prominent on that front and it's got some big names car big name cars that are affected, but it isn't the only brand that's been hit by this. That being said, and no no shit, but I had a friend recently call me up asking me if sixty five thousand dollars was a good price for a mid spec Rav four, um, and you know obviously that's wow. not a good price for a mid spec Rav four. But that gives you an example of what we're talking about here. Really, kind of crystallizes what Toyota's trying to get at. And as you say, Scully, it's an industry wide issue, but the big T, as ever, is at the forefront of most of it. Well, there's one model that we're looking forward to coming to Australia eventually when it gets here is the Volkswagen ID3 Moco. But when it does come here, it would have already had a midlife facelift. Yeah, so it's no secret that Volkswagen has really struggled to get supply of electric cars in Australia. It's struggled to produce enough to satisfy demand in Europe, the US and China as it is. And little old Australia with its complete lack of binding CO2 regulations is not a particularly attractive place for companies like that to send EVs. That's why Volkswagen is lobbying so damn hard at the moment to change those laws, but I digress. Um, the ID3 is, of course, the essentially the New World Golf. It's a small hatchback, similar size to the Golf with radical design. Not the priority, the ID4 and ID5 electric SUVs will be the first Volkswagen electric cars and they're expected to arrive here in the latter stages of 23. But there has been a bit of movement at the station. James Wong this week got some news out of V-Dub that the mid-cycle update for the ID3, which probably points to a 2024-ish timeline, is on the cards for Australia. We are talking two to three years away at this point, so let's not you know get super excited. But the ID3 is going to go up against things like 
well, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of EVs that will be in the market by then, but everything from the BYD 803 at the bottom end in Nissan Leaf all the way through to some of the more premium compact Jira EVs that are going to start to proliferate. And you know what? As far as this is concerned with Volkswagen, uh, better late than never. It's not a leader in that space as it probably should have been, but I am glad to see that finally little old Australia is theoretically at least uh, getting access to the EVs that it needs from some of the bigger purveyors in the market. Uh, I should also add that the ID3 is the twin to the Cupra Born, which is going on sale, Scully, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe the first quarter of next year. Um, so by the time the VW version arrives, it'll be two or three years after the car from its lesser known sibling. Yeah, Cupra's got the jump on the rest of the Volkswagen group on that front. The Born is going to be the first MEB, which is the new Volkswagen Group electric platform car to come to Australia. Audi hasn't locked in the Q4 e-tron yet. We know VW's been struggling. Skoda's trying to get the Enyaq here, and it's, it's going to be a little while yet as well. Um, and ultimately, the two do very similar things. They're both quite compact, sort of golf-sized hatchbacks with electric motors on the rear axle. Uh, I think where Volkswagen might be able to set itself apart is Cupra's only going to bring quite a high-spec car to Australia to start with. It'll be the most powerful version. It'll have quite a bit of kit and it'll be priced theoretically between fifty-five dollars and $60,000, something like that. If Volkswagen can undercut it in a couple of years' time with a car for the people who are getting rid of their Golf and want to move into something electric, that could be where they really find their niche. Hey, Scully, we've been talking about the BYD Atto 3, or we've just, just have then. Um, it's officially hit Australian roads and it seems to be very popular with Aussies. It does. BYD stands for Build Your Dreams. Last week, they finally started delivering those dreams to Australian buyers. Um, they announced it like every good new media, or sorry, every good new car company on social media. We learned about this at about 4.30 p.m. on Friday on Instagram. Um, but BYD has been selling cars in Australia since early this year. It's had approval to actually deliver those cars since July. And the first Atto 3s, which at the moment in some states are the most affordable electric cars you can buy, although we don't know how long that'll last, have finally started hitting customer hands as of, yeah, last week. Um, the first customers were up in Sydney, and when it actually announced an on-sale date, BYD said it had more than 4,000 buyers lined up in Australia. We've seen some numbers recently that would suggest that's closer to 4,500, so already a big pool of cars to be delivered. BYD also says it can build 3,000 cars a month for our market, which if it can deliver on that by the end of this year, should make it the second biggest electric brand in Australia behind Tesla. The Atto 3 itself is priced from 44,990 drive away, depending on where you are in the country. But the extended range model is the first one that's coming to Australia, and that's 47,990 drive away, again, contingent on subsidies. Gives you 420 k's of range and using the Blade batteries, which BYD is known for. It manufactures them for a few other brands now as well, and they're a type of battery that's meant to essentially allow you to, to fit them in a thinner housing. Um, that's 50 kilowatt hours in the entry-level car and 60 kilowatt hours in the extended range that's touching down first. BYD itself is a really interesting brand, and Moco, I know you've covered them a little bit. From what you understand, this is just the start, isn't it? It is just the start. You touched on the Blade batteries before. One of the uh, companies that BYD actually supplies Blade batteries to is Tesla, no less. If, so that should give you a real insight into 
the esteem in which BYD has held. Warren Buffett is the main shareholder in this company, though it is based in China. And it's widely seen alongside Tesla as kind of at the vanguard of these non-legacy brands. Uh, in fact, there was a, a few stories kicking around earlier in the year about how BYD had actually outsold Tesla, at least for a brief period of time in the new energy space. And we're seeing it now increasingly ramp out all over the world across Europe, across much of Asia, and of course, Australia as well through an independent distributor. Um, there are a couple more models coming, a car called the BYD Seal, as in the animal seal or the singer seal, depending on uh, you know <laughs> what, what kind of uh, things that evokes in your head, um, which is essentially a Model 3 style uh, EV sedan. is going to lob, theoretically at least, by the end of this year, although we'll see if that happens. There's going to be a smaller car too called EA1, which is a sub $40,000 electric hatchback uh, that's theoretically going to rival the likes of the M. G4, which is also just coming around the corner. And there's a heck of a lot more than that coming as well. Um, these Chinese companies have really been priming themselves for a long time. BYD is a dominant player in China's new energy market. It's got all of its ducks in a row now. Its factories are humming. Its exports are starting to boom. And I think they're going to pull the trigger really fast. And that needs to be something that the existing brands should be very, very concerned about because the electric car world is very different. Electric car buyers in Australia are very different. It's only 4% of the market here. They're very loyal. They don't necessarily rely on old world brands. They're quite happy to take a punt on something new. And I think if uh, existing brands that we all know and love let the likes of BYD continue to get the jump on them, they might find their market share dwindling very, very quickly indeed. Although until I've actually driven one of these Addo 3s, I will reserve just that little bit of judgment. That is the key with the Addo 3, isn't it? And we are working on locking in a car at the moment to review out of Melbourne and to video. So keep an eye out for that. But the fact that there's four and a half thousand orders already would suggest not everyone is as wary as we are. And lastly, Scully, Mercedes-Benz Australia has been hit with a rather large fine after a Takata recall. It has. In the context of car brand fines recently, it's actually quite small. Volkswagen was fined $125 million over Dieselgate in Australia. This is a $12.5 million fine from the federal court for failing to use attention-capturing, high-impact language when talking with its customers about the Takata airbag recall. These airbags were the biggest story in the world for a little while there because after a certain amount of time, the inflator would degrade and if the car was in a crash where the airbags were fired, rather than firing a big pillow in your face, they would also shoot essentially shrapnel from their casing into the cabin and there's been deaths around the world, accidents, injuries and deaths in Australia from them. To solve the problem, the ACCC initiated the first mandatory recall of its kind, which essentially laid out how car makers had to recall these airbags and replace them and how it had to talk to customers uh, about them. And one of the conditions was you can't downplay this. You can't just say it's a precaution. You can't essentially make people feel comfortable that they're going to be okay driving their cars with these airbags. The ACCC said you have to use attention capturing high impact language is the direct quote. Mercedes-Benz has admitted to 27 different occasions of not doing that. It had a call center set up where people could call and read their number plate to or VIN to operators and they would then tell them what they needed to do to get the airbags replaced. And on some of those occasions, uh, they told owners that the recall, recall was precautionary. On others, they told consumers that beta airbag inflators, which is one of the categories that was impacted, didn't have faults or hadn't caused any accidents, injuries, or deaths, which wasn't true. 
For its part, Mercedes-Benz came out and said that the actions of the company were not deliberate. They were not deliberate as a direct quote there. Uh, and it said that 27 exchanges from more than 50,000 calls were the ones that have been picked up on by the ACCC. But Mercedes has also admitted to wrongdoing in those cases. And along with the fine, it's done what is called a, uh, a court-enforceable undertaking. We've seen this from a few different brands. That essentially means Mercedes will have to communicate the federal court's findings to all relevant execs and staff, to communicate annually with all relative executives and staff about how important uh, complying with recall obligations is, and to make sure that all the relevant staff are, are briefed next time there is a mandatory recall. Ultimately, uh, it essentially the undertaking is essentially saying Mercedes-Benz needs to tell people in the company how to carry out this recall properly next time so it's not in the same situation again. Gee, uh, Mercedes-Benz Australia's in-house legal counsel are copping a bit of a workout at the moment because that's not the only federal court that uh, the three-pointed star brand is involved in. Of course, there's a very, very high-profile court case going on at the moment here in Victoria uh, between some of its dealers who are seeking compensation for having to adopt a new model called the agency model, basically a fixed-price model under which Mercedes-Benz maintains ownership of inventory and turns its dealers into sort of, I guess, handover agents, for lack of a better word. Um, now, these franchise dealers have been a bit stroppy about that and they've taken Mercedes-Benz to court seeking compensation, saying you need to pay us a bunch of money because we've built up a lot of goodwill in your brand and now you're taking that away from us. So we don't know what the result's going to be. That precedent is going to be an enormous one because a lot of other OEMs are looking at going down a similar retail path to Mercedes-Benz. But it is interesting that, you know, when it rains, it pours. And this is a company that seems to be having more than its fair share of days in court right now. Um, now, we're actually going to end the news with, August VFACT, the new car sales figures, Moco, which you've just recently written up. How did we go for last month? Yeah, my favourite day of the month, as the joke goes, <laughs> although after years and years of doing it, the novelty is wearing thin. Um, no, so uh, look, it's been nothing but terrible news for a long time um, in Australia. Record demand alongside record lack of supply has created a bit of a Pandora's box. But there was some positive news in August. Sales were up actually by 17.3% over the same month in 2021. And it was the best uh, tally for the month of August in about five years or five years exactly, I should say. So, you know, in the grand scheme, this is looking like the market is returning to some semblance of normality. Um, the Toyota Hilux, of course, whose surprise number one selling vehicle outsold the Ford Ranger, which was relegated to second, although based on the uh, demand v supply situation for the, for the brand new recently launched Ford, I suspect it's more down to the latter than the former. Toyota RAV4 uh, in third position, which has become familiar. But one of the big surprises is that the fourth most popular vehicle on the market and the most popular a conventional passenger car was none other than the Tesla Model 3 because Tesla got a big shipment of Model Ys and Model 3s in. In fact, the electric car market in general was up um, a significant amount, 4.4% market share for uh, battery electric cars for the month, which is an all-time high. Um, according to the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries. So that's a lot lower than we see the EV penetration in much of Europe, North America and Asia. But 4.4% of the Australian market for the month, BEV, the highest to date. 80% of every EVs, or, of all the EVs sold uh, wore a Tesla badge, which gives you some insight into the dominance of that brand. If we have a look at the, the, the manufacturers that perform well, Toyota, 
more than 20% market share, up 3.3%, more than double its nearest competitors. So that's way out in front. Number one uh, commercial and SUV brand, uh, as well as passenger brand. Mazda in second, up 15%. Kia finishing third, up 34%, and relegating its big brother Hyundai to fourth, also up 32%. So a very close-fought battle between the two Korean brands at the moment. And year-to-date, Kia is leading Hyundai, but only by the barest margin. So that's one to watch. Mitsubishi in fifth, up 33% for the month. Ford in sixth. Tesla, the seventh top-selling brand, ahead of MG Subaru and Mercedes-Benz with Volkswagen just narrowly missing the cut. Um, We saw a couple of manufacturers show very, very positive growth. Great Wall Motor or GWM Haval, BMW, Suzuki, Renault, Ram and Porsche as well as Genesis all grew very strongly. Um, New to market brands included Cooper and Polestar that have also started lobbing their figures. A few brands are still struggling though. Land Rover was down 40% as was Skoda. Volkswagen down 24%, Nissan down 23%, Lexus down 20% and both Isuzu Ute and Subaru down as well. So not every brand is back on an even keel. And if you look at the model race, I mentioned those top four before, but rounding that out, so it's Hilux, Ranger, RAV4 and Model 3, Mazda CX-5 in fifth, Corolla in sixth, Mitsubishi Triton seventh, Hyundai i30, Isuzu D-Max and Toyota Prado. So not a lot of unfamiliar faces in that part of the market. Um, And then if we break down into some more miscellaneous facts and figures, New South Wales car sales are up by 40%, 40%. Yeah, and so I suspect a lot of that might be because of the recent floods. We've had a lot of claims on damaged and replaced vehicles, and I suspect that probably played a role. Victoria and Queensland are also up, but a lot of the rest of the regions, the smaller population centres were down. So the growth that we're seeing across the market was not unanimous, but it was certainly concentrated in the population centres. If we look at a category breakdown, SUVs, 51% of the market, so more than half the cars sold SUVs. Light commercials, 23.6%. So three quarters of the car market now is either a ute, a van, or an SUV. The days of the passenger cars are well and truly behind us, I think. Um, Private buyers were up more than the overall market average, 23%, whereas fleets are only up by 11%. So it's the private market that's really driving this. And uh, finally, before I just throw to you, Scully, um, as well as the electric car space, we saw an overall market share above 10% for electrified vehicles. So that's hybrids, plug-in hybrids and EVs. And to my knowledge, that's the first time that's happened or certainly one of the first times. Now, ask me questions. Moco, in the ute world, the Ranger is the one that gets all of the hype, uh, but it still hasn't outsold the Hilux since the new model went on sale in Australia recently. Do you think at some point soon the new Ranger could overtake the Hilux, or do you think that maybe the Hilux's fleet dominance is going to keep its nose in front even as the Ranger picks up pace? Yeah, I think a few of us have been surprised how well the Toyota Hilux has been hanging in there. It broke its all-time sales record three months ago. It broke its monthly sales record for a particular month the following month. And gee, I just used the word month three times in succession. And then it was also the top-selling vehicle in August as well. So even though there is a lot newer and shinier competition out there, not just the Ranger, of course, but I mean, the Isuzu D-Max and Mazda BT-50 are much newer vehicles than that Hilux. And yet the big T continues to dominate despite the DPF issues, despite the age of its car, reputation goes a heck of a long way, but so too does supply. And um, Toyota is quite openly saying that one of the very few cars it has that isn't horrendously affected by supply shortages is the Hilux. It comes out of Thailand. 
unlike most of its cars, and Australia is a major market. So that certainly helps. But, you know, in this ute market, man, it takes a heck of a long time to make progress, and Toyota's been doing it for such a very long time. That being said... I would be staggered if a lot of these Hilux uh, deliveries were not people who had perhaps first gone to a Ford dealer or inquired about a new Ranger and couldn't get one, had perhaps gone to Isuzu, which is suffering from huge shortages of the D-Max, and maybe the Hilux was sort of the second or third priority for them, but it was the one that they could get. I suspect there's a little bit of both going on. And as you touched on, of course, too, we are seeing these big fleet buyers starting to regenerate, and when it comes to fleet purchases, nobody does it better than Toyota. So all those things come together and you end up with the situation we've got. There are some updates coming to the Hilux later in the year as well, a, re- a revised rogue range topper a bit further down the line, a new Apex off-road version as it calls it, and some spec changes as well to keep it fresh. But, you know, having driven both the Hilux and New Ranger lately, I can honestly say the Ford is significantly better. <laughs> I can't talk <laughs> about long-term reliability, of course, because it's a new market car, but it's certainly a more modern contemporary feeling vehicle. Vehicle. So if Ford can get its supply situation sorted, I see no reason why it shouldn't overtake the Hilux, but that doesn't mean it will. Well, a little later on, uh, Scully is going to be talking about the Ford Ranger Raptor, so uh, keep your ears out for that. But in the meantime, if, we would, if you would like to read up more about VFACTS and those car news stories we spoke about, head to carexpert.com.au. Hello to you, James Wong. Hello, Mandy and gentlemen. you're on for this week to talk about the volkswagen t-rock uh now what exactly uh what exact variant did you drive with this one so we drove all of the three variants that are coming as part of this midlife refresh Um, i can only talk about two of them today though so um as with the last range there's an entry-level 110 kilowatt model as with front wheel drive as well as a um, higher spec 140 kilowatt model with all-wheel drive. The headlining act is really the new T-Roc R, which has 221 kilowatts, and that's a new um, entrant for the Australian market, given we didn't get it with the pre-facelift range. But unfortunately, that's under embargo until September 15th, so I can't really talk about how that is at the moment oh, other than Volkswagen. what it's priced at. All the fun's gone now. <laughs> I know, I know. They're saving the best till last, though. So um, yeah. on the launch, I drove all of the different variants. Um, the the base and the mid-spec both have carryover engines um, but it's more of like an equipment and, and aesthetic enhancement over the over the previous model um, so there's quite a lot more um, spec and then the interior has a, a new design with some better materials and things like that so they've really tried to address key criticisms of the old model so which one do you think was the the better pick yeah it's an interesting um it's an interesting conversation there because we drove them pretty much back to back and we're in canberra so we we would drive out of the the airport and then onto some really lovely country roads out to places that i can't remember or pronounce properly because they had some pretty (laughs) interesting names but there's some really awesome roads out um outside of the canberra cbd so i started off in the 110 and then drove back in the 140 uh which are called style and r-line respectively so they've got um, the the R line is a new name for 2022 slash 2023 because the old one was called the Sport, um, so it gets a bit of a new look and some extra appointments, and then there's a range of new options. But so the, the base one with its 110 kilowatt engine, which is a 1.4 liter turbo, um, it doesn't seem like a whole lot on paper considering some rivals offer more power from you know larger 
usually naturally aspirated engines. But because the T-ROX uh, engine has so much torque from down low, it's doing about 250 newton meters just above idle. Uh, it's, it gets along really smoothly and it sort of feels a little bit or drives a little bit like a little luxury car. Um, it's not like most Volkswagens in that it actually runs an eight-speed automatic gearbox as opposed to a DSG. Uh, we run the drivetrain that used to be used in the um, American market with the non-performance Golf models, uh, which is not as efficient as the new ones that they have in Europe with the 1.5 liter and the DSG. But for some people who might be worried about, you know, DSG quirks or the, the servicing costs associated with the regular uh, maintenance on those transmissions, this is sort of like gives you a little bit of peace of mind. And to some people, they'll prefer how it drives because it's very, very smooth. Um, it shuffles through gears um, very quickly and it's still very efficient, still got idle stop start and things like that. And um, with the standard 18-inch wheel package and the, the normal tires, it's actually a really comfortable and quiet thing to drive. It doesn't have adaptive dampers in this spec. So that we, we have a standard suspension tune, um, chubbier sidewall on the tyres and on some of these country highways it was impressively refined so um, we've had complaints of the pre-facelift model where the the sportier grades with big optional wheels can be quite loud and that might be down to tyre choice as well as the large wheels um, but it was actually quite impressive the only time we sort of may have had any sort of complaints was when you know we had a group of 140 TSIs and 110 TSIs we was at, there was one point where I was following some of the R lines through the twisty bits and it was going up and down hills and all that kind of thing and you could feel that you were really working that smaller engine quite hard but I think for that model, the target demographic would be people who aren't necessarily that fussed about performance. And if, if you want something that's just smooth and quiet and drives really nice, like it's a really, really good option. Fun fact, do you know last month in Europe, the T-Roc was the top selling vehicle on the continent? Just to give you a bit of an idea no of while this, yeah, while this car is a bit of an unknown quantity in Australia in terms of being quite a new nameplate, it's actually a smash hit in Europe. But I digress. Wongi, um, I know that one of the criticisms of the pre-update T-Rock was its interior, a bit low rent, lots of hard, scratchy, you know, easily cleaned and well-built plastics, but not the most luxurious feel in the world. Um, talk to me about how Volkswagen has luxuriified, and I've made up that word, <laughs> has, 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 has made the interior feel more premium. And also talk me through any changes to the interior tech and features that are, that are worth noting. Yeah, so you're right. The, the, one of the big criticisms that I know that I think all of us have mentioned in previous reviews is that the, the interior, while it was sort of based off a Mark 7 Golf, didn't really quite have that Mark 7 Golf um, material quality that you know we'd come to expect from Volkswagen that has in the past pitched itself as like premium for the people. Um, so that new dashboard insert is a, is a welcome change. Um, other than that, it's more of a redesign and you know there's still hard plastics on the doors, but the seats are really comfortable. You can get them in uh, Nappa leather with the R-Line or Vienna leather on the style. So they're quite comfortable. They feel really nice and upmarket. So as long as you don't necessarily go pushing and prodding things, it still feels like it feels well built, just not all the materials are perhaps as upmarket as you'd expect. But we're seeing that across the industry these days as well. I know I've criticized um, some Volkswagen Group models, maybe 
to the point of uh, going too far, but that's also because as a Mark 7 owner, I think it's something that we've come to expect from the brand. Some of the other stuff that they've done is um, applied more gloss black, which presents quite well before you start putting your fingerprints all over it. And then they've also redesigned the actual dashboard fascia and the center stack as well. So instead of having the infotainment screen sort of sitting flush and integrated with the dashboard panel, it now sort of juts out in a like tablet floating style display, which seems to be inspired by the new Golf. So even though it's basically a Mark 7 Golf underneath, it's got sort of that Mark 8 design. Um, and then also the, the climate controls, uh, which are automatic dual zone climate controls as standard on all models gets the new like touch capacitive sliders and new buttons and stuff that we've seen on other Volkswagen models like the Tiguan and the like so in terms of it definitely presents better than the old one and I guess it does um, the, the changes do quite a bit to sort of bring the T-Rock in line with newer models in the range uh, but it, for example putting it next to something like a Mazda CX-30 or some of the more premium compact crossovers that uh, sort of competing in that low to mid uh, $40,000 price point. Um, it definitely isn't a standout in that regard, but I guess they've done enough to make to freshen it up and make it feel a little bit more expensive. And um, the, 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 the tech is still pretty similar. You still get um, the avail- available 10.25-inch digital cockpit pro, which is not standard on the base model, but it's optional. Um, and there's eight-inch screens, touch screens as standard across the range. Um, unfortunately, you can't get the nine-inch screen until you get to the R, which is optional in other markets. But you still, once you get to that highest spec eight-inch screen, you get satellite navigation, wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. Um, and it's got a wireless phone charger as well. So you're not sitting there <laughs> letting your phone drain while you're connected up to the car. It seems like every week on the podcast now we're talking about a Volkswagen Group SUV and they all kind of cross over. We've talked about the Cupra Ateca, the Four Mentor. Moco was on talking about the Caroc recently. Now we're talking about the T-Roc. Where does this car fit in that sort of Volkswagen world and does it get kind of lost among all of its siblings or is there a little niche for it there? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've sort of been thinking about it as I finish writing the review. And in terms of pricing, especially once you get to that 140 kilowatt R-line model, you're sort of cross-shopping between a high-spec version of that as well as an Audi Q2 is essentially the same car. Um, the A base Cupra 4 Mentor, which again is almost the same car underneath, but it's actually based on the newer Mark 8 underpinnings. You've also got the Skoda Karak, obviously, which is sort of like a larger, more practical version of this, but to some people might not be as sexy. Um, and then you've got everything else within that segment from the Mazda CX-30 and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, in terms of within the Volkswagen group, I think the T-Rock is sort of like a happy medium between, you know, practicality and sporty looks. It sort of blends in the cool... Um, coupe-ish hatchback sort of styling cues that you get with the Q2 and the um, the Formentor. Um, it's not quite as large as a Formentor or a Karoq, but it's still, it's still about as practical, if not just a little bit more practical than a Q2, and you get things like um, rear air vents and a slightly bigger boot. Um, and then also it's perhaps you can get more stuff for a little bit less. If you fully deck out, say, a, a T-Rock against a Karok, you still get it a little bit cheaper. Um, same goes against maybe like a Q2, which be- can become quite expensive once you start specking that up. Um, and a, a, a base formental with all the option packs that's specced up against maybe a, a 140 TSI R-Line T-Rock is 
you know, nighing on that $60,000 barrier, which is a lot for a small SUV. But when you think about how much everyone's charging and once you start getting equivalent specs and things like that, to get a European-made vehicle in that ballpark in these segments, it's, it's all sort of, you know, par for the course. So it does sort of... It has a very distinctive design. Um, now on all versions, you can get like a contrasting black roof, you can get a black pack and things like that. Um, the, I really like the the Nappa leather seats that are an option on the R-Line. They, they're super comfortable, electrically adjustable, and they look great as well. They're basically the same um, body kit and interior that you get in the R just without sort of the blue bits. Um, so it's sort of like a little... Um, little sporty crossover and as we've said with things like the Havel H6 um, GT and Mazda MX-30 and Renault Arcana there aren't a whole lot of those coupe styled SUVs at this price point so you can sort of see the the T-Rock as being you know a, a mainstream coupe-ish sport backy style um, compact crossover. So Jay I suppose uh, we should get down to the driving aspect how did that go? Yeah, so I sort of touched on the 110 already and, you know, the performance from that is really good if you're generally driving around town and then occasionally get on the freeway. One thing I really tend to write home about um, Volkswagens and, and most European cars in general is that even in the compact segments, because they're designed to go quite fast on the Autobahn or the equivalent in other European nations, they're, they're generally very settled and stable on the freeway um, for anyone who travels at 110 fairly often. Um, in terms of the differences between the two cars, the, the 140 kilowatt R-Line obviously has a lot more punch and sort of has that warm hatch vibe about it and you also get the um the snappier shifts of a dsg as well as the added traction of all-wheel drive so you know if you don't think about the r for a second the the r line with its i think it gets to 100 about 7.2 seconds isn't that far off a gti badged polo or something like that so if you want something that's a bit more jacked up um but has similar performance it definitely goes hard and it has a sporty exhaust note you get um with the optional black styling package with the bigger alloys you get adaptive dampers as well so you can have it really really soft and comfortable for you know city streets and it it was demonstrably quite comfortable and almost equivalent to the base model in that regard when it's in its comfort mode otherwise you can firm it up and make it a little bit more dynamic in its 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 sportier modes Uh, one thing i will say is that the r line on the optional wheels did get very noisy over some coarse chip tarmac which was quite disappointing because we basically drove them back to back so straight away i noticed that there was quite a difference in road noise but i guess you know if you're buying a t-rock r-line are you necessarily going on the hume highway at 110 every day i don't know but i guess it's something to consider um if you're if you're looking at the two vehicles and perhaps tossing up your use case but yeah they both performed really well in their own ways i think that personally i preferred the the style i wish that you could get the 140 kilowatt engine and four motion um drivetrain with the style because having that more luxurious um fit out and the nicer suspension tune and the better the quieter tires would be a really nice um all-rounder and sort of like luxury alternative but i can sort of see where both of them sit in their respective parts of the lineup well, you're still writing that review, as you said at the very beginning, Jaywo. so we look forward to seeing that at Car Expert very soon. Thank you very much, James Wong. Thank you for having me. Hey, Scully, how did it feel to be behind the brand new Ford Ranger Raptor? Did you feel like a boss? Felt like a real man. <laughs> Ready to tailgate anyone who comes my way. <laughs> Ready Did it in. actually feel big behind the wheel? It does feel big. And I, yeah. I mean, I joke, but um, it is a really, really impressive truck. It, it does feel big behind the wheel and you look at it. The old Raptor we thought looked really tough when it came out. 
this new one, because it's been developed in line with the rest of the Ranger lineup, feels a little bit more like it it was made to be chunky and tough and wide to start with. It actually, it's got a lot more presence about it. And when you see it in your mirror, there's no question of what it is with those C-shaped lights and the the big chunky Ford grill. So we we joke, but it really is a car with some presence. <laughs> so aside from the exterior and the styling, what else differs from the standard Ranger? So the big thing in this Raptor, there are two big things actually. The first is the suspension and, and what's going on under the body. Like the last Ranger Raptor, Ford has fitted this one with a Fox suspension setup. These are Fox Live shocks that are a development essentially of what was on the last car. The other big sort of news in this is the engine. The previous Ranger Raptor Ford debuted its two-litre bi-turbo engine that's now available across the Ranger lineup in Australia. It's a good engine. It tows fine. It's economical. It's not really a Ford performance engine though. The new one gets a three-litre petrol V6 and it's got 292 kilowatts of power and 583 newton metres of torque. It's got a full-time four-wheel drive system and a whole lot of new drive modes that can really take advantage of that engine as well. And it fundamentally changes the character of the car. It's a really impressive engine and it turns what was a ute that we were really in awe of because of what it could do off-road into one that we're in awe of because of how much fun it is. So Ford did this launch uh, out of Brisbane and we drove the Everest the day before. That reviews a week after this one. But it actually cut essentially a rally special stage into a paddock in the winery we were staying at. I realize that's a weird combination of words to anyone who isn't a motoring journo. Um, And we got to do some high-speed off-road driving, some low-speed off-road driving, and then some on-road driving as well. The high-speed off-road driving was the fun bit, so we'll start there. Um, this course was gravel, dirt, some sort of rutted, muddy bits, and then essentially a jump. I have no doubt we got air over it. Um, and we drove the old Raptor first, and it was really impressive the way that it sort of floated over all the bumps and the ruts, and you could really attack stuff at speed that in most other cars you'd have to slow down for. But it was really noticeable how quiet it was and also how soft the throttle felt. Put your foot down and it has to think for a second and the turbos get going and it gives you a bit of a push, but it's not a performance engine. Immediately, the new car is way more serious. You can hear it from a mile away in Baja mode, which Ford says is for off-road use only, but I maintain that that off-road use only is like that lasagna that I ate on my own last night serves four people. Um <laughs> And when you put your foot down, it gives you a proper shove in the back. It really feels serious. It's hot hatch fast on pretty much any surface. Ford actually hasn't given us a 0 to 100 time, and I'm no doubt Paul will test that on video, but immediately it's faster. The other noticeable thing relative to the older car was how much more direct the steering was and how once you've actually got the car turned, because you've got so much performance on tap and because it's got anti-lag, you can really adjust what the car's doing with the accelerator. So on this gravel course, you could like stamp on the brakes and all the weight goes forward and the back of the ute starts swinging around and then rather than worrying about it, you just put your foot down and keep sliding it. It's like an overgrown uh-huh. rally car and it's really, really impressive from such a big, heavy truck. It's so interesting to me that, you know, 
this is kind of a bit of an amalgamation of a lot of different historically successful performance cars in Australia. You know, we used to have V8 rear-wheel drive road-oriented utes, and this has a bit of that. You know, it's got a super powerful petrol engine and it's a ute. Um, but we used to love, you know, hot hatches that had rally pedigree. And this has got a bit of that. It's got some rally pedigree because, as you said, you can do jumps and you can drift it and it does donuts and all sorts of crazy stuff off-road. But it's also got its own completely distinctive character that is really like nothing else. Um, we've seen a bit of a trend, obviously, with the growth in utes. A lot of other brands are trying to do the same sorts of things in Australia as Ford is with the Raptor, most of which are developed here in Australia locally. You know, they'll, they'll bolt on different aftermarket accessory bits with some degree of local engineering involved, Nissan Navara Warrior, Mazda BT-50 Boss. There's a, whole, there's a whole range of them. But let's be honest, this Raptor is really its own beast, right? There's nothing else remotely like it in the Australian market. It's one of a kind. Is that the sense that you got when you were driving it, Scully? Absolutely. Um, relative to the old car, it feels more fully formed and more special. Uh, and where the old one felt like the ultimate Ford Ranger, the new one feels like it's a it's a Raptor before it is a development of the diesel cars that we've already driven. I think the interesting thing about this use or this product relative to what Australians love in performance cars is that although it takes a different shape, it's got a different engine and where it delivers its best performance is different in that it's off-road. What it does have is that it's authentic and it's genuinely capable. And I think if you look at the brands that are really strong in Australia on the performance front, Volkswagen R only brings the most powerful, most highly specced versions of its cars to Australia because it knows that Australians appreciate proper performance cars that really can actually back up their looks when you get down to it. AMG only brings S. BMW brings mostly competition products with the M cars. The Ranger is the similar sort of thing in that even though most people won't actually use all of its performance, I think the fact that it has so much in reserve and it has been so thoroughly engineered based on both the people we spoke to and our experience behind the wheel, it takes a different shape, but it is still, it is still in a similar vein to the cars that we, we already know and love here. Is there anything at all in which it's not as good as the outgoing Raptor? Because we all love the outgoing Raptor. As you said, bombing down a corrugated B-road in that thing was unbelievably fun, right? Doing, you know, standing 360s on a closed circuit, of course, uh, with absolute ease was great. But this one seems like it's a totally different kettle of fish. Is there anything that the old one did better than the new one, do you think? Uh, I think if you're you're on a budget when it comes to fuel, the old one is going to be the choice. Um, this petrol V6 in our road drive averaged around 13 litres per 100 Ks. And there was definitely some playing around with the car to make it, you know, do fast ute things, but it's never going to be as efficient as the bi-turbo diesel in normal driving or on the highway. I think beyond that, we're going to need a little bit more time with the car to know. But based on our first drive, it, it really does feel like everything the old one could do based on our experience behind the wheel, this new one will do, but just better. Uh, Off-road, the really impressive thing about the old one was, yeah, how it would float over all sorts of surfaces and just had this sort of unflappable character thanks to the Fox shocks. And the new one features a more sophisticated version or development of a, a similar suspension system. 
on our high speed track, we were smashing it over ruts and sort of road gaps and that sort of thing that in a normal car you would slow right down for and and trickle over. And in this, you could just absolutely attack. Uh, so on that front, it feels like a step forward. When it comes to off roading, you've now got a full time four wheel drive system. You've got a more sophisticated computer system running it all, and you've got locking differentials front and rear. So again, Ford has ramped the game up. And then on the performance side of things, you've got this engine, which in Baja mode sounds hilarious. It, it sounds like a trophy truck from across sort of across the other side of the place we were um, we were driving them. Um, and you've got this extra degree of adjustability that's been dialed in with the drive modes to the point where even the ABS tune when you flick into Baja mode is different. So I think the first car really laid the foundation and is a really impressive car. I know there's lots of Raptor owners out there who might be listening to this going, oh my God, I've got to get rid of my car. There's nothing wrong with the old one, but it really does feel like Ford proving the concept. And this new one has been developed with the knowledge of the first one with a longer runway and a bit more freedom, and it moves the game forward. Um, I, I think if you want to know a little bit about the character of the car and and sort of to to sum up why it is so why it feels so out there. You can put the car in Baja mode, which is its most sort of aggressive setup for the electronics, but it's got a slightly softer suspension tune. You can put it in rear-wheel drive. You can turn all of the driver assists off, and you can lock the rear differential, and you can do that up to the car's top speed. So essentially, Ford has a mode built into this thing that is full-on drift mode, uh, and you can do it at any speed, and it's not going to get in the way or tell you that's dangerous or, or cut the electric nannies in. I suppose it's a very specific use case, but it shows that where the first car was capable of going quickly over anything, provided you had a bit of a run up, this new one has an extra degree of customization, an extra degree of headroom built into it that allows you to further explore that. So for the money, 80-odd, $85,000, Scully, what sort of tech do you get in the Raptor? So along with the extra performance it packs over a wild track, the Raptor gets a very similar interior. You really are paying for the off-road hardware along with some other you know, bits like unique seats, which are actually really lovely, unique stitching, unique styling, that sort of thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing because the new Ranger relative to every other dual cab in Australia right now has the best infotainment system and has the highest tech cabin. You get the big, it's a, uh, a 12.3-inch uh, vertically-oriented touchscreen. You also get a 12.4-inch digital instrument cluster, which is a little bit bigger than what you get in the regular Ranger lineup, and it actually has some more displays, some extra performance styles, that sort of thing. So that looks and feels a bit special. But yeah, you, you sit in the Raptor, and like the rest of the Ranger lineup, it immediately feels like a quantum leap forward from something like even a D-Max, which is quite a new ute, but has what feels like an aftermarket head unit there. I will say I was there with Will Stopford, who is our local sort of plastics and touch points geek. He loves poking and prodding <laughs> things in cars and finding the bits that don't feel all that well built. There are definitely still some hard seams. There are some bits and pieces in the Raptor cabin that I suppose, show that this is a car that started life as a a base XL for fleet controllers and has been dressed up to be a more expensive performance ute. Ultimately, I had no problem with that. Will had no problem with that. And I think the average Raptor buyer will have no problem with that because of what it can do. But yeah, for all of the tech that it does have and, you know, the luxuries like what are really excellent seats and, and, you know, excellent cameras and that sort of thing, you are still buying a dual cab ute and that does still come with some compromises. 
Well, that sounds like a pretty good wrap there. You can head to carexpert.com.au to read more about the Ford Ranger wrapped up. That's it end for this week's podcast. Where is the team off to next week, Scully? So this coming week, we have a lot of people running around, actually. Uh, Paul, Albors, Igor and Sean are currently driving from Adelaide to Sydney doing a range test in an electric car and a very efficient diesel. Um, And then from tomorrow, I suppose the time we're recording this from yesterday when it goes live, James will be driving the electrified Genesis GV60 and G80. Mike is driving the new Suzuki S-Cross in Melbourne. And Anthony Crawford is a really busy man. We, we make fun of him, but he's flat out this week. He's driving the MG ZS EV, the Peugeot 308, and the Renault Traffic. Jeez. We've also got Albors off to Spain to drive the new Range Rover Sport. And Will is going to be in his spiritual home, the USA, in Detroit for the launch of the new Ford Mustang. He will be a very happy boy indeed. And uh, what cars have we got coming up next week, MoCo? Well, I currently am in the most – before I get on to next week, I've got to say I am in the most – like old person special you could imagine. A base Lexus ES finished in pearl white with a beige leather interior. I mean, you know, I'm 35 going on 75 right now. Let me give you the tip. Um, We've also just picked up the uh, recently launched Skoda Karok Sportline and uh, Skoda Fabia Monte Carlo Edition 150, as well as a revisit of the Toyota Yaris SX Hybrid, just to remind ourselves of what is one of the most fuel-efficient cars money can buy. Up in Brizzy, floating around is a Genesis GV80 with a couple of revisions involved. And then Shortly after that, we pick up uh, the new Cupra Leon VZE, the Lexus LX600 Ultra Luxury, which is the most bougie land cruiser that money can possibly buy. Um, Hyundai i20N, just for a bit of a revisit, and perhaps the most exciting vehicle, one that I'm yet to have a go in, much to my chagrin, a, a manual gearbox toting Nissan Z Coupe. Looking very much forward to getting my hands on one of those. I know the rest of the team have driven one. So some pretty exciting and diverse and eclectic cars coming through the garage. Uh, Yes, indeed. Well, it has been absolutely fabulous this week, guys. Scott Colley and Mike Costello, thank you very much. Thanks, Mandy. Always a pleasure.